Aaron, are you ever just like sitting in our room thinking about the Hillary Clinton campaign and like what happened? If I say no, would that ruin what the joke you're about to make? <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> okay, then yes. Okay, wow. Don't you ever like hope that there was just like a book that came out that just detailed exactly what happened in the Hillary Clinton campaign? Would this book happen to be called Shattered? <laughs> it would, Aaron. It would in fact happen to be called Shattered. Wow, that's fantastic. The book is called Shattered. It's written by Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes, uh, two reporters who have basically been following Hillary Clinton for the last five years in a non-stalkery kind of stalkery way. Yeah, totally um, legitimate. <laughs> they, wrote, legal. they wrote a book back in 2014 called HRC, detailing her, um, you know, her experiences in the State Department, and basically looked at that book and said, Hillary Clinton is going to be running for president. It was the not secret secret in Washington, D.C., obviously, at the time, and decided that they were going to follow her and uh, follow her campaign and write a book about it. Yeah, they've been working on this project for about two years now, uh, while also being full-time reporters. Uh, and the, the end product is just fascinating. You guys got to get yourself a copy of this. Uh, we, I'd like to think, are the first podcast to have them on. Uh, they said just now their media cycle is starting to kick up. They'll be on Charlie Rose later uh, this week. Uh, or probably well, before the before it. yeah Tuesday tomorrow. How do, however time works tomorrow yesterday it's all it's all the same basically but. this book has taken DC and you know the political world by storm in the last you know week or so because it really is the first book to detail what happened with the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, a campaign that had been you know depicted as you know a flawless precise perfectly operated campaign uh, which is which really wasn't direct contrast to the Trump campaign uh, which was publicly had a lot of infighting but. Uh, you know, Shattered really details uh, a lot of the political infighting that was going on in the campaign, a lot of the big decisions that were made. Um, you know, this book is really the fly that was on the wall. Um, they do of, better than we do. They really do of, you know, the Clinton campaign. Great. Well, on that note, let's bring him in. First up, we have Amy Parnes. And then right after that, we'll go to John Allen. Wow, welcome to our episode of Fly on the Wall. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Um, so our first question for you, you're talking to an audience of Georgetown students, all who are vastly interested in, the, in this subject, but may not have heard about your book. So, you know, if you could just, you know, pitch your book to readers really quickly and talk about, you know, what would the narrative of Shattered really be? It's basically the story of what happened to Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. Uh, we went in thinking the outcome would be different uh, as we started reporting this book two years ago. Uh, but our reporting started to turn us in a different direction. It started giving us like little um, portraits of things that hadn't gone quite as well as anticipated. Um, and I think that's, even though we ultimately thought that Hillary Clinton would win and become president, um, I think we, there were always like a few red flags along the way that sort of indicated otherwise. And I think that's so fascinating that you, you guys very much had like a front seat to history. You know, you were embedded in, in this monstrous organization and, and campaign. And uh, you, I'm sure you have lots of stories to tell, but what we're interested in is uh, logistically, how did this work? You, you were basically, you know, what we do. So you were flies on the wall, mm -hmm. right? And we're just curious, how did you get that level of access? And when you're cultivating sources, how did you get people to talk? So my co-author John and I wrote uh, a book in 2014 called HRC, um, and which detailed her uh, Secretary Clinton's time at the State Department. And a lot of our sources came from writing that book. 
Um, we had both covered her, I'd covered her at least in 2008, so I knew a lot of the campaign folks from back then. Uh, and I knew I covered the Obama White House and some of her staff came from the Obama White House. So it was kind of a combination of all of those people um, and, and some new people that we met that, you know, they heard um, from other people that we could be trusted and that we told a good story in HRC and they opened up to tell their stories. So it's, it was basically a lot of, um, I still had my day, cho- my day job, so we had to do this mm-hmm. book kind of on night, a night and weekend schedule. And a lot of it, especially towards the end, was uh, there, it was a combination of reporting, writing, and editing. Um, and that was really different from our first book, where there had been clear times to write, report, and edit. <laughs> I'm sure that you guys came across a lot of different like like a large amount of information how was it how did you guys go about piecing together this information into a narrative what did you like how did you know what was important a year and a half ago and what was going to be important on november 8th well we took big moments such as um the her campaign launch in um, new york at roosevelt island and we wanted we started asking people about that um that was one of our first uh interviews that we conducted we just wanted to know more about what that process was like if people were happy with it, um, what they were thinking internally. Um, We started also talking about email and the controversy that had kind of loomed over her campaign. We wanted to know what the scuttle was inside the campaign, how they were reacting to it. We kind of had a sense of the public perception, but we wanted to know, um, you know, what took so long, um, why why the secretary refused to apologize until the fall. So we, we started asking questions based on news events, really, and it kind of took over from there. Did you have any trouble with that sort of strategy, you know, trying to pull from what was popular rather than, you know, what you sensed to maybe in your gut was like an underlying narrative that wasn't getting recognized? Yeah, I mean, we always ask, so what's the story we're not asking about? You know, what... <laughs> right. What, um, That's a good tip. <laughs> yeah, we actually found... Um, there was one scene in particular um, where we had to, a source basically told us about a little fight that had happened uh, when Secretary Clinton got really upset um, after the primary loss in Michigan, um, told us about it, and then uh, didn't want to tell us about it, so we had to ask other people about it, and nine months later we were still asking about it to kind of get um, everyone in the room to weigh in about what that was like and why she was so upset and what she was saying. And so I think it's it's just a matter of reporting and reporting again to make sure that you're getting it right. A surprise story that you bring out about this campaign is that there was fighting within the campaign, you know, um, maybe not at the level that you saw on the Trump campaign. And it definitely wasn't reported in the same light that the Trump campaign was reported on. And that was that's why a lot of this book is getting a lot of traction. Uh, why do you think uh, this was kept so hush hush? Why did you think that like the media had portrayed this campaign as, you know, flawless? Um, I think because in some ways they overlearned their lessons from 2008 and because this inviting had kind of splashed into the newspapers and onto the cable networks, they were kind of a little more reticent this time around. They didn't want that to happen, obviously, because they saw that it was impacting their campaign. So there was an effort, I think, to you know, portray a drama-free campaign. And often we would hear that from people, oh, this is no 2008, it's a whole different campaign. Um, and in some ways it was. I, I think in some ways the crew there um, did um, work uh, more in sync, I guess you could say. And they were. it was a more seamless operation. But I think 
you know, it definitely had its flaws as we report. And, and what do you think, this is something that you guys recognize, all right, let me rephrase this differently. How, how are you guys uniquely positioned to get this story, writing this book rather than the reporters who were on the trail day to day? I think because we had, we had written HRC um, and that was, a, that was a book that required, we spoke to more than 200 people for that book. Wow. Um, we built the relationships with a lot of those people over time. Uh, and, you know, a lot of source building is just, it's relationship building. And I don't think you have to necessarily travel day to day to know what's going on. In fact, I found when I have traveled with campaigns, you're kind of stuck in this bubble and you can't see the bigger picture. So it's almost more helpful to take a step back and not be in that bubble. Um, it gives you more of a vantage point to, to really know what's going on and to make the calls. I think, you know, the reporters that are traveling on the campaign trail are heroes because they're basically, you don't know where you are at any given moment. But, um, you know, t- reporting, I guess, from a distance allows you to make calls and to kind of see the big picture and to see where things are going wrong. Whereas I think if you're too close, it's almost uh, not as good. And, uh, you know, you, you point to an interesting part of your book, too, in that there's this, you know, there's this big disconnect in the Clinton campaign between what's going on in Brooklyn and what's going on, you know, on the ground in a lot of these states. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems that um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of, you know, Clinton staffers were a lot less confident than, um, you know, the campaign made itself out to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, they had a lot of trouble bringing up, you know, certain problems that they had with the campaign to hi- these higher powers. Why do you think that was? Um, I think it's because, you know, I think analytics and data played a big role in this campaign, and it was obviously steering the campaign in different directions. And that was, you know, President Clinton was a little annoyed by that because he kept saying, I'm feeling a different thing on the ground when I talk to people, and he kept pushing back. And then there were other people on the ground in states and swing states that were kind of feeling the pressure. And one person told us it was like as if I'm going into battle and I don't have armor. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people felt that way in states like Colorado and Michigan, um, a state that she lost twice in the primary and the election. You know, people, um, surrogates on the ground there were kind of sounding the alarms and saying, we're not, we're not well equipped here. We don't have what we need. But for whatever reason, they just, they didn't, um, they didn't feel like it was necessary to do that. They felt like they, they were okay in those states. So I think, I think a lot of it was analytics and data and, and, um, and basically listening to what they thought was, was the right thing to do. Right. And we're almost out of time with you, but we have one last question. What's a moment from the experience of writing this book that you will never forget? Hmm. What stands out? I think the biggest thing that stands out is the night of the election. I was in the Javits Center. I think it's one of those 9-11 moments where you're always, it's going to be like a where were you moment. And I was there at the Javits Center and I'm watching everything happening around me. And um, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what what do we do with our book? <laughs> uh, and... Uh, and you know, I'm, it's interesting because I was obviously doing our doing my day job and reporting at the time, and um, kind of with that question kind of looming in the back of my mind. And it wasn't really until five a.m. when I got back to my hotel room in New York that I actually started thinking, "What if we called this book Shattered?" Um, mm-hmm. 
because we were going to call it Shattered, actually, had she won. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask, is there, like, I recognize the double It fits both, there. yeah. Yeah, we like the kind of double entendre there, and so we felt like it was, it was, um, I think, I talked to John about it, and we felt like it was actually more powerful now that she had lost. Right. But, but that was, you know, it was kind of a matter of, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a moment I'll never forget, because I don't think any of us saw that coming. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Of course. Amy Farns, thanks. Thank you. Up down, John Allen. A conversation we just had with Amy uh, actually was, uh, we asked her, you know, what the biggest moment in writing this book was, was, and she said election night. And she, she basically said that she had a conversation with you about what this book was going to be. Um, uh, obviously you guys must have had an idea of what the book was going to be leading up and then election night must have really changed something. So, you know, what happened on election night and, you know, how did that restructure, reframe your book, if at all? Well, I think the big thing obviously is that Donald Trump won. And I think most people, including (laughs) ourselves, uh, expected Hillary Clinton to win. But, and so we, we immediately said, well, look, we obviously have a book about a, a losing presidential campaign and that is a different story than a winning presidential campaign, obviously. To say the least. Uh, and it's, I thought that it would be more interesting. I initially, like my immediate reaction was, I think this story is actually, is more interesting now. This surprise defeat, what, what led to it? Uh, people are shocked. I think they're going to want to know what happened. Had she won, uh, I think the interest level and in the behind the scenes of it all would have been lower in some ways. Right. I, you know, people just watched this campaign for you know, the last couple of years, um, and, and some of them very intensely for a long period of time. And had she won, they would have felt like, oh, I know why she won because of X, Y, and Z, and it was this and that. But but the loss creates, you know, sort of a, a more interesting narrative, I think, because you're curious about uh, what went wrong. And I think we were lucky in that, or maybe prescient, hopefully, uh, I'd rather be lucky than good. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think we were lucky that when we went about reporting and writing this, uh, we sort of put outside the box the question of are we writing a book about somebody who's going to win or one about somebody who's going to lose. What we really tried to do was just get the story of each of the pieces of the book. And, you know, some of them are less, some of the chapters are less, um, you know, sort of chronological story than, than others, you know, less TikTok-y than others. But most of the chapters in this book are, are pretty much that. What is the behind-the-scenes moment-to-moment of, you know, Iowa caucus night where she's expecting to win, but then Sanders comes very close. He calls it a virtual tie. It, he's pretty much right. I mean, they basically tied there. She, she wins by just a little bit. Yeah. What is all the drama of that? How did the, you know, how did how was the drama happening that night? What were the things that led to that? I almost think it's like kind of a mini version of the entire book, uh, some of the chapters of, about particular states. Um, and so we go through, uh, we were going through before the election and interviewing people and finding all this stuff out, and we saw a lot of flaws in the campaign. So I think our thought was, we're going to write a book about, if she wins, we're going to end up writing a book about how she won despite this flawed campaign, and what do those flaws mean for uh, a Clinton administration going forward? What are some of the, what are some of the battles internally going to be? Who's going to win those battles? What are the things she might want to correct about her, you know, about her operation? Um, and, and what struggles will she have in an administration? And then she loses. And 
you know, the, the sort of narrative arc is an easier one in a way, right? Because you see all these things that lead to the loss. We'd already observed this. We talked to so many people even before she lost that, um, you know, we, we felt good about it. In October, I think Amy might have told you this, but in October of this year, of last year, of 2016, our editor called us and said, you know, I don't understand. Like, your book is has all these flaws on this campaign and she's about to win the presidency. <laughs> and he's like, you might want to start thinking about how you're going to rework that. Wow. And we were, and we were like, you know what? We stand by this. This is our reporting. Like we're, this is what people have told us and we're going to stick with it and see what happens. And, you know, we'll just see what happens on election day. And, um, you know, he wasn't demanding that we change things. He was just saying like, there's a, a sort of a cognitive dissonance between all the problems we saw and the idea that she was going to win. So, like I said, I think we were lucky, but but the upshot of that is we didn't have to go back and tear up chapters and right. rewrite them because they weren't written with the with the idea of, you know, you're writing in you know the, the Iowa chapter and you're like, well, this is this is how she set up to win 16 months later. You know, I mean, I'm sure that there were you know it was a line here or two there change, but like we didn't really have to reconstitute entire things because of the outcome. Right, and, and you said. While you guys were on the on the show reporting this, you, you saw a lot of things that led to a loss. What I'm wondering is, it's easy for you know political scientists and analysts to look back and say, oh, this, 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 this is where she, she slipped and fell. What I'm wondering is, what's a piece of evidence that you saw, but at the time didn't seem relevant, didn't really seem like big news, but ended up being pretty consequential? Well, I think, you know, we're not the first to say this, but the uh, Michigan primary um, where she, because it was a place where she competed against Bernie Sanders um, and had a real problem with the white working class voters. And in fact, um, to her campaign's great surprise, uh, Bernie beat her among white women uh, in the Michigan primary. And really? Yeah. And nobody really picked up on it at the time, that particular demographic. I think I want to say it was like fifty-one forty-seven or something like that. Um, they her team had modeled everything out, and they had modeled African American turnout pretty correctly, and they, you know, modeled white turnout pretty correctly. But they they really didn't see was that women that the majority of white women were going to vote for Bernie. I mean, that was a shock to I'm sure it was a shock to them. It was a shock uh, in looking at it later and trying to assess. So that was a canary in the coal mine. In fact. We call that chapter uh, about the Michigan primary uh, canary in an auto plant uh, <laughs> because Michigan obviously is the audio, auto industry. Yeah. Um, so that was, a, I think that's a good example of a time where, you know, there was something that people really didn't catch on to that, that was sort of an important harbinger. Yeah, that's fascinating because she did end up losing that uh, white women suburban, like the it's suburban soccer. 53% went to Trump, yeah. Yeah, and that, that was, again, one of the things that everyone looks back and says, that was a pretty consequential demographic, but you know, to see it firsthand and to, to sort of know that before, that's just fascinating. I'd imagine, uh, too, to pivot a little bit, um, in reporting on this book, you must have you know, cultivated a lot of sources. Um, but something that uh, I was just thinking about was the fact that um, the um, WikiLeaks email blast and you know, all of the emails that came out must have added some nuance, at least to part of your book. Um, was that helpful in the reporting, you know, the internal dynamics of the Clinton campaign, or was it unnecessary due to the people that you were talking to? Have you ever written a paper and then found out that there was, um, like, two or three books that you didn't read that would be integral to understanding the topic? <laughs> That's where I'm at right now, this final paper. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I mean, the WikiLeaks were, were good and bad. They were, 
terrible in that there's 50,000 or whatever new new emails from John Podesta's email that you got to like go through and try to figure out what's relevant and is it you know one of the fears is that the things people have told you are at odds with the the stuff that shows up in a paper trail and email which may or may not actually be accurate but then you have to try to figure out how to reconcile those things um, the way that we largely used them was to illustrate points that we were already making um, about what was going on internally because we I think we had a, the story right already so you know we would we're writing about how they you know had issues with the first speech that she gave the first big speech that they gave and you know some of those emails help uh, help put a little flesh on the bone mm-hmm. I mean we we knew that that stuff was going on and we had people talking about it and we had pieces of the story but then you see some really succinct email and you're like this is you know good Perfect. evidence to show <laughs> to show what we're doing so you know, it was a headache to go through all right. that stuff, but uh, I think it made for a better book. Right, and just to pivot again a little bit, because you, in going through your book, uh, I know a lot of people have been fascinated about uh, President Bill Clinton's influence, non-influence in the campaign, and how he was calling for um, an appeal to swing voters, and how he was feeling things on the ground that wasn't really jiving with the data that they were picking up in Brooklyn. So could you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what surprised you when you were learning about how different people had different levels of influence that, you know, might might be surprising to a general reader. So first of all, I'm not surprised that you would come back to Georgetown alum. You've got to give him a shout out at least once a time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, with him, there's this fascinating argument that goes on um, between the sort of Bill Clinton generation political folks and the millennial or millennial attitude folks who are like looking at data and the the latter group really has this fundamental belief uh in data not only as a tool but as a a decider in terms of how to make decisions about resource allocation Uh, and some of that comes from the uh the press that barack obama got for his data shop uh in 2008 2012 and so what happened was Barack Obama won the presidency and he had a pretty good data team. So people were like, oh, the data team won him the presidency. So let's do it better. Right. <laughs> right. As opposed to thinking, well, Barack Obama's a pretty easy candidate to sell. So, you know, maybe maybe it's easier for him to persuade than it would be for another candidate or easier for him to do X or you have to spend a little le- less money to do Y yeah. to get things done. So there's this kind of interesting back and forth the whole time about, uh, and, you know, throughout the book about... Uh, the question of whether to try to persuade people to vote for Hillary Clinton. And Bill Clinton's view was, you've got to go out and talk to people who don't agree with you, uh, and by doing that, you will move numbers. And there were a whole set of people who said, it is a waste of money to try to persuade people. What you would rather do is spend a lot of money trying to find the people who agree with you and turn them out to the And mobilize, yeah. And most people will tell you that that is a, in fact, I think all people would tell you that that is a more efficient way of spending money. However, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy or death spiral kind of thing that happens where you increasingly talk to your base, you alienate people who are not in that base because you were messaging only to one set or to a smaller and smaller set. And as you alienate more and more people, you get a smaller and smaller set. So there was a chicken or the egg question, which was, um, is Hillary Clinton not persuading people, um, you know, essentially because she's not trying or is she not trying because she can't persuade people? And I think... (laughs) You know, the, I think a lot of the data folks believe that she would have a greater hurdle in persuading people to vote for her than uh, 
than was worth trying. Uh, and then there were others who said, how do you ever move numbers on persuasion, uh, move people to a camp unless you, you make an it. effort to mm-hmm. do it? Were you surprised that the president, Bill Clinton, you know, a seasoned politician, was not getting that level? He was on the wrong side of the, or the losing side of that issue. So what happened was in 2008, he really asserted himself in a lot of ways in the campaign trail. And he was blamed. He took a lot of blame for her losing, in part because you know, there were a couple of big moments. One was in South Carolina when uh, President Obama, then, then just a candidate, won uh, South Carolina. And President Clinton dismissed it by saying, well, Jesse Jackson won South Carolina. And the implication <laughs> was, if you're a black candidate, you can win South Carolina. Yeah. And it was it was a messy thing to say, at the, at the very least. And he was accused of... Um, you know, playing up racial differences for his wife's political benefit. Um, and so he he t- kind of took that to heart, you know. I mean, I think he didn't like being blamed for her loss in 2008. In 2012, the Obama people came back, and they used him much differently than Hillary Clinton had in 2008. And they basically used him as a, a validator, and they get, you know, he gave a big convention speech, and he raised money for President Obama, but he didn't do a lot of off-the-cuff talking. Um and then in you know in sixteen he was again cognizant of not wanting to be blamed for his wife's loss so I think he pulled back a little bit I think in in places where he might have tried to strong arm decision making either with the campaign manager or with the candidate um, I think he chose to give his advice and then follow instructions mm-hmm. um, and you know who knows whether she would have won if she had followed what Bill Clinton wanted to do. It's impossible to know. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting that he sort of, he believed in the art of persuasion as, as an important piece of politics. And uh, I'm inclined to believe that in, you know, almost everything we do, whether you're talking about politics or filling out a baseball roster, um, <laughs> you know, that, that there is, it's important to know what all the, the data is and it's important to know where efficiencies are. And yet uh, there's an art to these things as well. And that's an interesting point you bring up because a lot of uh, what your book, you know, illuminates is, you know, the power that Robbie Mook had in this, uh, you know, in this election. Um, and a lot of it, too, you know, brings into question uh, maybe if, uh, you know, Secretary Clinton held too much faith in him and, you know, faith in his analytics. Do you think that's true? Uh, I think that she, after, again, all of this comes from sort of as sort of reactive to, to 2008. Um she thought President Obama ran circles around her in terms of how modern campaigns are run, technology, data, all those things. Mm-hmm. And so her view on a lot of things was essentially that he had run a pristine campaign and she had everything she had done was wrong. And so she wanted to model after what he did, and she hired some of the same people that he did. And um, I don't think she trusted... I don't think she trusted her gut on uh, what she should be doing politically after having experienced 2008 and sort of trusting the Clinton era people and their sort of gut old school <laughs> politics, she was like, all right, well, now we're going to go with the data guys. And even when she did, I think she did lose faith in Robbie Mook at, at points. Um, and we detail some of that in the book, but I don't think she ever fully trusted herself to like make that change, to basically put somebody else in charge of that or to abandon it. Um, you know, I think, you know, we spoke to a lot of people who have different views of how, how all that should have been run. And, uh, you know, one of her close confidants said to us that, um, that she didn't get rid of Robbie because 
she wasn't confident enough in her own instincts. And that's not a direct quote, but it's a paraphrase of something somebody said in the book. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's interesting. And, and again, we don't know. Maybe she gets rid of Robbie Mook and does all this persuasion stuff and, you know, and only uses the data as a tool rather than a decider and loses anyway or loses by more. But, uh, you know, one of the things you do when somebody loses is you look at the decisions they made and, and assess, right. mm-hmm. you know, what decisions might have been the wrong ones. Yeah, and I think that's the fascinating part about this book is you, you guys really get inside those rooms. We, we like to joke that we are the flies on the wall in D.C. politics, uh, but you guys really did it with this book, and I think that's fascinating. Uh, and just one last question from you, because there's a lot of good in the book. What's one thing that got cut from the book when you guys are going through this writing revision process that you think is still relevant and important to that story? Wow. You know, it's funny. There was something I was talking with my co-author about today. You know, there's an idea that somebody had had talked to us about that we didn't end up including that I thought was an interesting way of looking things at things, which is that essentially there was a candidate who had a lot of flaws. And by the way, I think the book encapsulates this idea, but we didn't say it as succinctly as this person in the book. Uh, there was a candidate with a ton of flaws who had created her own additional uh, impediments in the email server and in the speeches to... Wall Street banks um, who, uh, you know, had a lot of trouble with various aspects of the campaign. And what this person said was everybody was just trying to reduce the likelihood that she would lose. Mm. Um, and, and this was a fairly senior person whose, whose view was that, that like she had done so many things and had so much baggage that it was just like every little thing we're doing is trying to just like fine tune. And that in a way, explain some of what Robbie Mook was doing, right? If he believed that he had a candidate who, um, you know, really wasn't able to persuade anybody under any circumstances, then you can understand why he would try to squeeze every last vote out of that base and not not talk outside it. So, you know, I mean, I think all everything in, in moderation, but uh, um, I, I thought that was just a fascinating idea that, that these folks were just trying to, trying to reduce the odds a little bit. Yeah, playing not to lose rather than playing to win. Yeah. All right. Well, thank, thank you so much. For, uh, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to our uh, bonus episode of Fly on the Wall podcast. Surprise! Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Whose birthday is it? Can we pretend someone's birthday? No okay. problem. Anyway, thanks, guys, for listening, and we will uh, catch up with you soon. Check out our next episode on Sunday. We're talking with E.J. Dion. He's a professor here and an expert on religion and politics. And a conversation many people have here at Georgetown. So uh, we're hoping you guys enjoyed that one. Definitely check it out. Thanks, guys. At Fly on the Wall Pod, Insta, Twitter, and Facebook. And coming soon, our new website. Stay tuned. Aaron, if we were to ever get Bill Clinton on the podcast, A, we shouldn't tell him that we recorded with the Shattered People. and then, <laughs> He would not be into that. No, and then B, we should record it on Harbin 5. Was it Harbin 5? I think so. That's what I've been told. Hey, That's what people say on tours. If you've made it this far on our podcast, tweet at us. We'd really love to know if it's Harbin 5 or not. Someone tell us.